Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the IPS Northern Lecture Series by Professor Joseph Liao, our 13th National Northern Fellow for the Study of Singapore. Today, Professor Liao will be delivering his third and final lecture titled, Mind the Gap, Identity Politics and Geopolitics in Maritime Southeast Asia. Following his lecture, Professor Liao will take questions from the audience in the Q&A session. The Q&A session will be chaired by Ms. Lee Suen, Senior Fellow and Coordinator of the Regional Strategic and Political Studies Program at ISIS Yusuf Ishak Institute. Before we begin, please allow me to go over some housekeeping rules for the event. Thank you for joining us at the auditorium today. Please be reminded to switch your mobile phones to silent mode. The lecture is being streamed live on Facebook. It will also be recorded and uploaded onto our IPS website and our social media platforms later. Please submit your comments and questions at any time during the lecture through the Facebook comments. For our audience members here at the auditorium today, please step up to the mic during the Q&A session to ask your questions. We will try our best to answer as many questions as we can during the Q&A. We will also like to hear your views on the event. There will be a link in the feed at the end of the lecture which you can click on to submit your feedback. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I would like to invite Professor Liao to begin his final lecture. Professor Liao, please. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. I don't know whether it's a good or bad omen, but I realized my shoe broke <laughs> this, this afternoon as I was coming up here. So uh, we, we, we will see how it turns out. Um, so thank you very much for bringing the elements to, to uh, join me for, for this last uh, lecture. It's been a wonderful uh, experience and I hope uh, for those of you who attended the previous lectures that you found it useful. Um, and uh, today I want to share some thoughts um, on this topic of uh, identity politics and geopolitics uh, in maritime Southeast Asia. And I would like to actually begin by sharing a conversation I had uh, fairly recently, a couple of months ago, with, uh, with a friend of mine who is a senior uh, retired foreign policy official uh, from Singapore. We were having a drinks, we were having drinks, we were talking about a number of things, and I mentioned to him that, oh, by the way, I've been invited to speak uh, uh, for, as this uh, IPS Northern uh, Fellowship. And uh, one thing that I am thinking of talking about is U.S.-China relations and some of the big challenges uh, confronting uh, Singapore. So this friend of mine responded by saying that, yes, uh, that those are very important uh, topics, but at the same time, we really should take care not to lose sight of what is happening in our immediate uh, neighbourhood. Yeah? In fact, he went on to say uh, something to the effect of um, if Singapore wanted to have a strategic and thoughtful foreign policy, it must start with having a good understanding of the dynamics uh, in our uh, immediate neighbours in terms of the society and politics and how things are playing out there. Yeah, and uh, as I reflected on that, uh, on that conversation, I thought it was an important reminder that even as uh, Singapore rightly should constantly widen our, our aperture and, and globalise our outlook, we also need to to develop a, a sharper sense of our surround, uh, to understand our neighbourhood and to be cognitively anchored in it. Uh, in other words, we should take care not to miss the trees for the forest, uh, if I may turn that uh, on its head. 
So in my first two lectures, um, I unpacked some major geopolitical trends that are affecting the region in Singapore. Um, first, of course, the US-China relationship, then the state of the, the global order and where I thought it might be headed. Uh, we also talked a fair bit about ASEAN, uh, developments across the wider Southeast Asian neighbourhood. So for this third and final lecture, I hope to do two things. First, I want to bring the discussion closer to home, to the sub-region in which Singapore is firmly rooted, not only geographically, but culturally, economically, and strategically as well. What I'm referring to is uh, what we call Maritime Southeast Asia, which we can also loosely call the Malay, Javanese world, or archipelago, or in local parlance, Nusantara. By analogy, I suppose, if we think about the wider Southeast Asian region as the, the first two numbers of our postal code, then the maritime domain is essentially the last four numbers of our postal code, if you know how our postal codes work. So to be more specific, I will primarily be talking about Indonesia and Malaysia today, our two closest neighbours. And because I have spent a significant chunk of my career studying their society and politics, hopefully I will have something intelligent to say uh, about them. Second, I want to speak about them in the context of this nexus between geopolitics and identity politics. Now, in many respects, our neighbours are in the same geopolitical boat as we are, right? They too are buffeted by the currents of great power competition. They are perturbed at how the global order appears to be fraying. And they have been concerned about the ability of ASEAN to, to corral together a cohesive strategic outlook. But at the same time, they have their own unique domestic context and socio-political conditions that shape how their governments and societies respond to geopolitical events. Chief among these conditions and contexts, I would argue, is the nature of identity politics in these two countries and how they have unfolded over time. In this regard, two events that have brought this nexus between geopolitics and identity politics into much sharper relief in maritime Southeast Asia recently are first, the current situation in Palestine, by which I do not just mean the Israel-Hamas war, but the wider historical dynamics surrounding it. And second, the cultural dimensions and impact of China's rise on ethnic Chinese communities in the Malay-Javanese world. As you can see, I have picked two very easy topics this afternoon. Now, these are, of course, uh, jokes aside, sensitive topics, but the reality is that they are posing challenges to states and societies in maritime Southeast Asia, whether we like it or not. And for this reason, I firmly believe it is imperative to at least attempt to understand the context surrounding how and why these events are having the effect that they do. But before I plunge into the deep end, let me first take a step back with some framing questions for us to consider. What is identity politics? Why choose it as a means of getting at the issues at hand? And how does it relate to geopolitics? Now, at first glance, identity politics may seem a somewhat uh, broad, protean, catch-all term. But in essence, we can say that it relates first and foremost to a range of political activities undertaken by groups that share common identity traits. And second, 
This political engagement takes place around issues that are defined by this shared identity. Identity politics also tends to involve intangible or what some might call extra economic factors, such as culture, race and religion. Even though, to be more precise about it, it also has a political economy in terms of how identity contestations and conflict actually find material expression over allocation of resources, availability of opportunities, and quests for political power. Now, issues of identity involve a wide range of social phenomena, such as gender, class, minorities, immigration, and so on and so forth. The list can really just go on. And needless to say, each and every one of these are very complex in and of themselves. But my interest today is not really on identity politics per se, but how, why, and where they interact and intersect with geopolitics. As such, I will limit my discussion to issues of ethnicity and religion. Why do I choose to focus on these identity markers and not others? Not because I think that they are more important, but rather because they have been core themes in the process of state formation in maritime Southeast Asia for a long time. Not to mention the political contestations that have accompanied these processes. Therein lies the convergence of identity politics and geopolitics. Maritime Southeast Asia, as we all know, has a very rich kaleidoscopic, ethnic, cultural, religious and linguistic landscape. It goes without saying that this diversity and pluralism has been a source of pride and strength for the peoples and societies of the region. Indeed, the ethnic and cultural identities that Maritime Southeast Asia celebrates today have very much been the product of this diversity and pluralism. But at the same time, the great strength of diversity can also paradoxically be a source of vulnerability, if not weakness, when they take the form of identity politics. That is to say, the interpretation, organisation and mobilisation of group interests defined in accordance with these identities in opposition to threats to them, which usually arise from other identity groups. And often this happens at the expense of much-needed compromise. Under such circumstances, diversity quickly becomes difference, which, left unchecked, give rise to fault lines that raise political stakes, intensify contestations, and ultimately undermine cohesion within societies. Those of us familiar with Southeast Asian history, indeed with our own history here in Singapore, know that this is not an abstract hypothesis. We have seen this unfold all too often in the real world. Importantly, these fault lines are not exclusively domestic in nature either, even if they may begin that way. They can also manifest across borders. This has in fact happened in the past, causing misunderstandings between neighbours and creating obstacles to regional diplomacy. Indeed, one reason why unity is so important for Southeast Asia and for ASEAN is precisely because of the shadow of identity politics, which makes unity so elusive and when painstakingly established, so difficult to maintain. So how precisely might identity politics shape geopolitics? 
I can think of three ways, although there are probably more. The first and arguably most fundamental, identity politics can influence the foreign policy of a government. This should be pretty self-explanatory, and it is very much in evidence in the world around us today. This influence occurs when a government prioritizes the interests of a particular identity group in its crafting of foreign policy or pursuit of relations with other countries, or when it allows issues of identity to determine official positions on any given issue that surfaces in the international arena. The most vivid expression of this, I suppose, is populism, and we, see, and we are seeing more and more of it happening in the world today where governments surrender thoughtful, strategic policy-making at the altar of the uncompromisingly narrow interests of pressure groups. Second, countries can coalesce around issues of identity, be it culture, language, religion, or shared history, to define and advance shared interests. This can take the form of formal interstate organizations such as the OIC, the Nordic Council, the Arab League, perhaps even ASEAN with its social cultural pillar of the ASEAN community. But this transnational activism around identity issues is usually more prevalent in the NGO arena. Some examples would be the International Organization for Migration, which champions the cause of migrants and refugees globally, the Global Fund for Women that supports women's rights and gender equality, and Greenpeace or Global Witness, their campaigns against environmental and human rights abuses, and there are many more such NGOs. Third, identity politics can have extraterritorial consequence in how they sometimes trigger cross-border tension and even conflict. I can think of at least three ways, or three conditions, if you will, where sectarian dynamics of identity conflicts can occur with transnational consequences. First, Rival identity groups that are spread across borders and that nurse long-standing grievances against each other. Some examples include Shia and Sunni Muslims across the Middle East, Hutus and Tutsis in Rwanda and Burundi, and Hindus and Muslims in India and Pakistan. At its extreme, this dynamic sometimes gives rise to separatism and irredentism. Second, when a single identity group is dispersed over several countries, but find themselves at the receiving end of mistreatment because of their identity, such as Pashtuns across Pakistan and Afghanistan, or Kurds across Turkey, Iraq, Syria, and Iran. Though no one talks much about it these days, we recall that one of the original reasons that Vladimir Putin used to justify his invasion of Ukraine was Kiev's alleged persecution of Russian speakers in Donbass. I believe at one point he even used the term genocide. Somewhat similar ethnic justifications were used by China during its invasion of Vietnam in 1979. Uh, you will recall one of the reasons used by China during the invasion uh, was the alleged mistreatment of ethnic Chinese. And third, specific to religious identity, there are followers of the same religion who are nevertheless divided between theocratic and secularist political tendencies. Some might call it radical versus moderate or fundamentalist versus progressives. The ensuing differences along these secular religious divide creates fault lines not only in the home state, but might spill over into neighboring states as well, 
as we have seen in South Asia with the rise of Hindutva in Nepal, and in the Middle East among Muslims across religious and secular divides in Egypt, Turkey, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco. The role of the Muslim Brotherhood, for example, and how societies and governments have responded to it. Now, let me go very quickly now into um, the first case that I wanted to uh, talk about, the Israel-Hamas war. Although it was not uh, in, the, in the scripts of my first two lectures, I ended up having quite a number of questions on, uh, Israel, on the Israel-Hamas war tossed my way. Uh, understandably so, I suppose, given the timing. Uh, so, so I decided to use this opportunity to elaborate further on the issue from the perspective of this link between identity politics and geopolitics. In a nutshell, the effect of the Israel-Hamas war on maritime Southeast Asia will be consequential, although this should really not be too surprising. Let me explain why I think this is so by first making some general observations about the war. Following Hamas's attacks on 7 October and Israel's subsequent response, a tragedy has been unfolding in Gaza, which in fact has long and painful antecedents. Meanwhile, the global outcry continues to grow. We need look not much further than the flood of protests in many capitals all over the world to realize this. In fact, I was in Washington, D.C. Um, for several days, uh, about two, three weeks ago, and it was clear then that President Biden's support within his own party was already starting to diminish because of the stand that he had taken uh, on the issue at that time. The issue of Palestine is certainly not new. Indeed, the Palestinian cause has been a lightning rod for various leftist and anti-colonial movements globally since 1948. Nevertheless, in this information age, images disseminated through social media over recent weeks have triggered a massive upsurge of sympathy for the plight of Palestinians in Gaza, in particular the loss of innocent civilian lives. This, even though on 7 October, Israeli civilians also suffered unspeakable atrocities at the hands of Hamas. We should take care not to conflate Hamas with the Palestinian people even though the group claims to be fighting their cause, uh, which is ironic, if I may say so, because they are doing it by placing the lives of the Palestinians, the very people they claim to be defending, in harm's way. Similarly, we should also bear in mind that while Israel is rightfully outraged at the attacks on 7 October, not all Israelis agree with the current heavy-handed response. There is certainly a religious dimension that complicates the issue further. Even as we acknowledge this, we should tread very carefully because of its complexities and the fact that there isn't a singular perspective even within religious traditions. Palestine clearly has great significance for Muslims. There's a long list of reasons why, which I don't think I need to get into here. What I do want to point out is that its religious appeal or dimension extends beyond Islam. According to Zionists, Palestine is central theologically and historically as Canaan, the land of milk and honey that God promised to the people of Israel. This is one Jewish perspective, but it is not the only one. Importantly, we should be aware that this is not a view that Orthodox Judaism subscribes to. 
The conflict has also stoked strong sentiments in particular segments of the Christian community among what have been called Christian Zionists, particularly in the US, who, by the way, have been, uh, who, uh, who are um, a major segment of the Republican Party base. These Christians subscribe to what is termed a dispensationalist view of eschatology, the, the doctrine of the end of times, which basically says that God has a special plan for the nation of Israel, and they see Israel's eventual physical occupation of the entire territory of Palestine as the final revelation of this plan. I would stress that this is not a dominant view among Christians, but is still one that warrants attention in the context of the ongoing conflict. Ultimately though, the Palestinian issue is a political one. I mentioned earlier that Palestine is viewed by many from the prism of colonialism and anti-colonialism. Why? Because it is about Palestinian nationalism and Jewish nationalism. And it relates to the creation of a sovereign Palestinian state and the security of the state of Israel. Since we are on the topic of the politics surrounding this, surrounding this conflict, let me also say something about Hamas. Politics makes strange bedfellows. And so it has been for Hamas. It is the Palestinian offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood, the quintessential Sunni Islamic political movement and party founded in Egypt in the 1920s. Yet Hamas has been in alliance with Iran, whose adherence to Shia Islam stands at odds with Hamas's Sunni disposition. It appears then that at least in this instance, political objectives trump doctrinal beliefs. Lest we forget, for a good 10 years or so, Hamas and Iran stood at opposite ends of the Syrian conflict. It was not until last year that Hamas restored ties with the regime of Bashar al-Assad. My point is that whatever else Hamas's agenda is, it is also avowedly political. And this is not unlike Zionists in the Jewish community or dispensationalists in the Christian community, who, as I suggested earlier, are also consumed by territorial objectives cast as religious narratives. Nor is it difficult to envisage how Hamas's actions on 7 October followed a geopolitical logic. Hamas would have been concerned that its agenda was being overshadowed by shifts on the Middle Eastern geopolitical chessboard as interests in the Palestinian cause among Arab states waned. By this token, its brutal attack on Israeli civilians, to which Hamas would have calculated will provoke an overreaction from a weakened coalition in Tel Aviv, was a desperate effort to return the Palestinian issue to the top of the regional agenda while halting rapprochement between Arab states and Israel. Finally, the conflict bears on the larger strategic context of America's bandwidth for global commitments. Setting aside Europe for the moment, there are two other regions in the world where the US plays an instrumental role as a balancer, offshore balancer, or a balancer uh, to hold a strategic equilibrium in place. The Middle East and the Asia-Pacific or the Indo-Pacific, of which Southeast Asia is a part. It should be no surprise then to find that concerns about American resolve are a permanent fixture in all discussions on regional architecture in these regions. To put it simply, America's friends and allies require 
constant reassurance of their commitment. Washington's preoccupation with China means that the pendulum of American attention had swung to the Asia-Pacific for a season. The outbreak of armed conflict in Palestine, which is likely to be a long-drawn affair, will require the US to refocus some effort and resources to the Middle East as it seeks to prevent the conflict from expanding regionally, uh, sorry, expanding regionally, preserve painstaking diplomatic efforts by Israel and Arab neighbors to improve their relationships, and map out realistic post-conflict scenarios for Gaza. How the US allocates its finite resources, and with a presidential election looming, will be carefully watched, particularly if the Middle East crisis grows more acute. Now, closer to home, the situation in Palestine has presented yet another challenge for ASEAN. ASEAN foreign ministers released a statement on 20th October expressing concern for escalation and calling for an end to the violence. The creation of humanitarian corridors and, importantly, protection of ASEAN citizens caught in the middle of the conflict. The, the ties, as you can imagine, are particularly perturbed by this. Among ASEAN member states, Indonesia and Malaysia have by far been the most vocal. The Palestinian cause has long animated Muslims in Southeast Asia, but especially in these two countries. Both issued strong statements calling for an end to hostilities and expressed unequivocal solidarity with the Palestinians. Neither mentioned Hamas or the 7 October attacks in their statements, focusing instead on Palestine and the plight of its people. Now, the responses of Malaysia and Indonesia to Hamas have been interesting. In Malaysia, the Prime Minister has not only been very vocal with his personal views in support of Hamas, but also very open about the Malaysian government's recognition of the group that has been designated by the US, UK, EU, Saudi Arabia and several others as a terrorist organisation. Malaysia also hosts the Palestinian Cultural Organisation, which is widely believed to serve as something of a diplomatic outpost for Hamas. In comparison, the Indonesian political leadership has been somewhat more muted about Hamas, although large numbers of NGOs, much like their Muslim counterparts, sorry, much like their Malaysian counterparts, have been quite open in their support. The head of religious affairs of NU, the largest Islamic organization in Indonesia, uh, in the world probably, Ahmad Faru Rozi, or Gus Faria, as uh, he's known, has gone on record to say, quote, Hamas is against Israel's tyranny because Israel continues to occupy and seize Palestinian land. If there is no Hamas, Israel will become even more hostile to the Palestinians, unquote. Another religious leader, Dadang Kamat of Muhammadiyah, the second largest Islamic organization in Indonesia, said, quote, Palestine has been colonized by Israel for 75 years. The colonized people have the right to fight to liberate their country from colonization. Hamas is the freedom fighter, the pejuang of Palestine, of Palestinian land. So the October 7 event was part of the Palestinian independence struggle, unquote. Malaysia has repeatedly called for peace negotiations and the creation of an independent state of Palestine 
based on pre-1967 borders, with East Jerusalem as its capital. Since its independence, which conferred it membership in the international community, Malaysia has been actively campaigning for international support for Palestine, not just through the government, but a host of Malaysian Muslim NGOs as well. The straight-talking former Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamad was a particularly vocal champion of the Palestinian cause, to the point of being labelled an anti-Semite, a label that incidentally he proudly wears as a badge of honour. While Malaysian leaders have been supportive of Palestine since at least 1948, it was Mahathir who had always argued controversially, yes, un yet unapologetically, that any use of force by Palestinians was not an act of terrorism to be condemned, but an act of defiance to be celebrated. Other Malaysian leaders have openly aligned themselves with the Palestinian cause as well. Former Prime Minister Najib Razak was one of the first leaders to visit Gaza after Hamas took over the government of the territory in 2007, following elections a year earlier. He also hosted uh, then-Hamas leader Khalid Mashal in KL. Anwar Ibrahim has also been a vocal champion of the Palestinian cause since his student leader days in Abim in the early 1970s and has emerged as arguably the most vocal global leader in opposition to Israel's ongoing actions in Gaza. In fact, a Malaysian friend I was chatting with last week about Palestine enthused that the old Anwar is back. If Malaysia's support for Islamic resistance in Palestine has historically focused on the Islamic part, in Indonesia's case, it has been more about the resistance part. Jakarta has long approached the issue of Palestine through its self-ascribed role as a champion of anti-colonialism, dating back to the days of the Sukarnoist old established forces versus new emerging forces. Sounds like a new Marvel superhero series. Some might recall that Indonesia blocked Israel from participating in the Afro-Asian Conference in 1955, and again in 1962 for the Asian Games, both of which uh, Jakarta hosted. I thought these were interesting in light of what happened earlier this year when Indonesia lost hosting rights to the Under-20 Football World Cup following a rather bizarre turn of events that began with local Indonesian authorities publicly announcing that they would not welcome the Israeli national team in their stadiums. While Indonesia maintained its position of non-recognition of Israel and supported the two-state solution during the Suharto years, because of the growing importance of its strategic relationship with the US, the new order took a more pragmatic approach and was less vocal on the issue. This changed noticeably with the resurgence of Islamic civil society activism after the collapse of the new order. Numerous Muslim groups now vocally advocate for Palestine and criticize Israel. This is evident from the protests that have been taking place across the archipelago in recent weeks, organized by various Islamic groups. Having said that, what is striking is also the interfaith character of some of these protests, which have involved leaders and followers of other religious faiths, 
the, the uh, November 5th uh, protest, the largest uh, so far at uh, Monas, the, the national monument in, in Jakarta, um, was interesting in how it featured not just the, the Islamic religious leaders, but they got religious, religious leaders from other communities, gave them the platform to speak out in support of uh, Palestinians as well. So how should we further understand the strong responses from Indonesia and Malaysia? For reasons explained earlier, many in these two countries who sympathize with and support the Palestinian cause do so through the lens of anti-colonialism and the rights of self-determination. We should not underestimate how deep this runs in their psyche, regardless of religious affiliation. Having said that, for Malaysian and Indonesian Muslims in particular, opinions on Palestine have also been shaped by a greater awareness of and emphasis on religious identity that has been playing out in their respective domestic, social and political spheres in recent decades. Among the regions of the world, Southeast Asia is home to the most populous Muslim country with around 231 million Muslims. Um, Pakistan is second with 212, uh, India with about 200 uh, is third, and then Bangladesh about 150 plus million. Malaysia is, is about 20 million. What is important to note is the trend towards a stronger sense of religious consciousness and identity, some would call it conservatism even, uh, among many Muslims in maritime Southeast Asia. Scholars have traced this to the so-called Islamic awakening or resurgence, that began towards the end of the 1960s as part of a larger global revival of Islamic consciousness, itself triggered by resistance to the long shadow of Western cultural and political hegemony and the failure of pan-Arabism. This transformation of Muslim society in, Southeast, in maritime Southeast Asia is now visibly expressed in everyday life, where more Muslims have been conscious of various performative aspects of their faith how they dress, how they speak, how they consume, and increasingly, how they vote. Crucially, the political landscape has also changed as a result. What was once somewhat marginal political ideology, i.e. the notion that society should primarily be governed in accordance with Islamic principles, has now virtually become a central feature of mainstream politics in Malaysia and to a lesser extent in Indonesia. What I want us to note is that this change in the landscape has also found institutional expression in the proliferation of Islamic political movements and political parties, many of which have modelled themselves after the Egyptian-based Muslim Brotherhood, the prototype Islam Islamist political party and social movement. Why is this significant for our discussion? Hamas, too, has notably modelled itself after the Ikhwan, the, the Brotherhood. This is not to suggest that Islamic political parties in Indonesia and Malaysia will engage in the kind of violence that Hamas did, but it does perhaps explain how and why some Islamic parties and movements in the region have ties with Hamas and identify with Hamas. With this greater awareness of Islamic identity, further catalyzed by the information and communications revolution, Muslims in maritime Southeast Asia more readily identify with and agitate for the cause of the Ummah, the Universal Brotherhood of Believers, 
And it is from that vantage that the Palestinian issue must be viewed. Capturing this mood is a comment by Indonesian Foreign Minister Retno Masudi, who recently said, quote, the Palestinian cause is the main reason for the OIC's existence, unquote. Referring to the situation in Gaza, Anwar Ibrahim has also recently said, quote, the Muslim Ummah is challenged and tested, hence we must show our firmness, unquote. It is in this regard that the metaphor of defending the faith which appears frequently, both explicitly and implicitly, in narratives surrounding Muslim political activism in Indonesia and Malaysia, takes on substantive meaning and practical urgency. For instance, the largest pro-Palestine protests in Indonesia, I mentioned earlier, held on 5th November at Monas, was organized by this organization called uh, KIBBM, Koalisi Indonesia Bela Baitu Maktis, Indonesian Coalition in Defense of Al-Aqsa and Jerusalem. So what does defending the faith mean in the context of the Palestinian cause today? And how will it manifest in relation to identity politics in these two maritime Southeast Asian states? Let me make three observations. First, it is about defending the people. It casts protests as an expression of religiosity, piety, and importantly, affinity with co-religionists. It is about identifying with the Ummah and the struggles that they encounter. Flowing from this, it is second, about defending the cause. It is about political activism directed at perceived historical and present injustices drawing on a long history that has seen religious nationalism, in this case, Islamic nationalism, serve as a cause around which sentiments are rallied. And third, it is about politics, or more specifically, a means through which the legitimacy of political leaders can be bolstered with the expression of religious credentials. Let me say a bit more about this final point. As a Muslim-majority country, Indonesia has a strong tradition of constitutional neutrality and social inclusiveness when it comes to religion, despite the efforts of some groups to call for a more prominent role for Sharia. Much of this has to do with how Islamic political activism was controlled during Suharto's New Order regime. Correspondingly, the demise of the new order paved the way for the mobilization of Islamic identity by many groups in the service of their political interests. Although these groups have been thriving in the democratic system of the post-Suharto era, some of them have paradoxically seized upon the opportunities that political openness has presented to disseminate intolerance, ethnocentrism, and anti-pluralism, often in the name of religion much of it directed at ethnic Chinese Indonesians, but also in opposition to democracy, which they criticize as a secular product of the decadent West. The politicization of religious identity is also playing out in Malaysia today, where in fact I would argue the situation has an even larger fraying effect for at least three reasons. First, unlike the expressed neutrality of the Indonesian constitution on Islam, in Malaysia, it is enshrined as the religion of the Federation, albeit with the accompanying provisions of freedom of religion, Article 11. Second, 
race and ethnicity in Malaysia, in Malay Malaysia, are imbricated with the Islamic religion such that legally and constitutionally to be Malay is ipso facto to be Muslim. And third, this imbrication generates dynamics that take place in a political context where legitimacy is defined by the need to reinforce the quote-unquote lordship ketuanan of one ethnic religious group over others. <coughs> Consequently, whether in Indonesia or Malaysia, those seeking political power find themselves having to appeal to growing religiosity, which they often do by articulating positions and pursuing policies through which they can brandish their religious credentials. In this manner, the politicization of religious identity then converges onto the recurring motif of defending the faith. Needless to say, this presupposes faith under assault, ergo the need and urgency to defend it. For those who subscribe to such a view, standing up for the Palestinian cause does not require a giant cognitive leap of any measure. Nor, for that matter, does casting a suspicious eye on non-Muslim minorities in their own domestic arena. So on that note, let me switch now to my second uh, case study for the day. If I can have a drink first. Maritime Southeast Asia is home to a sizable ethnic Chinese population. Of the main concentrations, around uh, 7 million reside in Indonesia, 6 million in both Thailand and Malaysia, and over 3 million in, in Singapore. These are approximate figures. From a historical perspective, what has been striking is how readily assimilation has occurred where local cultures have been receptive. Hence, in predominantly Buddhist Thailand and Catholic Philippines, for example, the intermarried Chinese communities have found a social niche that has allowed them to rise to the highest offices in politics. The same cannot be said of Chinese in Indonesia and Malaysia, where clear distinctions have been made and perpetuated between ethnic Chinese on one hand and local identities on the other. Needless to say, this has given rise to identity politics that not only continues to prevail in these societies, but have been further complicated by the rise of China in recent decades. The ethnic Chinese community in maritime Southeast Asia, let alone the whole of Southeast Asia, is hardly monolithic. They can be differentiated in any number of ways, in terms of their dialect groups, class, religions, and so on. To, that, to the extent that they hold positive views of China, these can also be differentiated. Some are energized by China's economic rise and eager to seize opportunities that this offers. Something of a reverse uh, of what brought their forefathers to Singapore, uh, sorry, to Southeast Asia in the first place. Some are congenitally skeptical of American and Western dominance and therefore sympathize with China from that vantage. And of course, some are drawn to the cultural and civilizational underpinnings of China's resurgence because it reinforces their own sense of who they are and their own search for identity moorings. In keeping with my theme of identity politics, it is really this last category that interests me, although there clearly are overlaps. 
Let me also say that it would be a caricature, not to mention highly problematic, to assume that ethnic Chinese are sympathetic to China simply by dint of their ethnicity or the fact that they are conversant in Mandarin. I hope you do not think that I'm making that connection here. We, we only need to look at the case of Taiwan to appreciate this. However, I do assume that identifying with the culture and language gives ethnic Chinese access to the cultural and civilizational motifs that China uses to define and frame its rise, regardless of citizenship. Chinese migration to Southeast Asia, originating from the southern provinces of China, was precipitated by adverse economic circumstances uh, and political upheaval during the 19th century. I think we, we, we all know this, and uh, Professor Wang Gangwu in front here has done exceptional work uh, on this issue. Um, so I'm basically just cut and paste what, what he has done before. <laughs> it was also affected and tied up with colonialist expansion and an attendant demand for labour. The Chinese term for such migrants has been Hua Chiao, sojourners, indicating the intention of the first, first waves of migrants to amass sufficient wealth to eventually return to their native villages. They continued to see China as an ancestral homeland and directed their loyalties and affinities to it. Notably, local governments and indigenous peoples also saw them this way, as outsiders. Despite the passage of time and changes in the orientation, not to mention citizenship, of ethnic Chinese, this question of belonging in the context of first, the rise of China, and second, the social political hierarchies of the Malay-Javanese world, as viewed from the local or Bumi perspectives, remains a recurring theme that continues to resonate. Uh, I will, I'll return to this issue in a minute. In 1949, following the unification of the country under the CCP, China tightened immigration laws and migration to Southeast Asian countries virtually ceased. By then, a new generation of ethnic Chinese had emerged in Southeast Asia, who were born locally rather than in China, and whose parents had migrated to Southeast Asia. This demographic shift created a new identity, that of ethnic Chinese who considered themselves foreign Chinese, uh, in relation to China. That is to say, culturally Chinese, but for all intents and purposes rooted in Southeast Asian societies. By the 1980s, with the opening up of the Chinese economy, the cycle repeated itself, this time with a new wave of migration of mostly middle class and better educated Chinese, seeking better job and educational opportunities beyond China's shores. In 1955, Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai introduced a policy of settle down and take local routes that encouraged Chinese in Southeast Asia to integrate into their new societies and take up citizenship. However, because these ethnic Chinese gradually grew to command a disproportionate amount of economic power, they continued to be regarded with suspicion by local communities thereby creating and accentuating pre-existing identity-based fault lines in Southeast Asian societies where assimilation had not taken place. This situation is particularly acute in Indonesia and Malaysia, 
where identity markers of race and religion feature prominently in local and national affairs. At its worst, it has given rise to a politics of scapegoating, which has been particularly divisive, such as when ethnic Chinese were blamed for economic troubles in Indonesia during the Asian financial crisis, or when they were accused of plotting to introduce a quote-unquote Christian state in Malaysia, whatever that means. Against this backdrop of strained inter-ethnic relations, there has been something of a re taking place among Southeast Asian ethnic Chinese communities, characterized by an awakening of their Chineseness via efforts to revive and reaffirm their cultural heritage. Permit me to share three observations how this has come about. First, in Indonesia at least, this has been enabled by a weakening of institutional suppression of Chinese cultural identity. Not unlike the resurgence of Islamic activism we discussed earlier, the collapse of the New Order regime paved the way for ethnic Chinese in Indonesia to reassert cultural practices that had been hitherto suppressed by the state for more than three decades. Second, and this is an important one, cultural identity and history form an essential part of the narrative of the rise of China and the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. Under President Xi Jinping, that grand narrative promotes a Chinese civilization or nation where Chinese citizens, regardless of where they are in the world, work together for the Chinese dream because they are sons and daughters of China. These are bits and pieces of speeches that he has made. The policy of a big overseas Chinese network, as it was called, was promoted by President Xi himself back in 1995 in an essay titled, Establishing the Concept of Great Overseas Chinese Affairs, which was authored against the backdrop of the handover of Hong Kong to China. Given his ascent to the pinnacle of political power, it is no surprise that the idea has become the centerpiece of Chinese policy, advocating for deeper cooperation between China and Chinese citizens abroad to fulfill the Chinese dream. Now, to a point, to a point, Beijing's desire to appeal to Chinese citizens living abroad is perfectly reasonable if care is taken to distinguish them from foreign Chinese referring to ethnic Chinese who are born outside of China, are rooted in the societies they are born in, and who are not citizens of the People's Republic of China. The problem, however, is that this distinction between diasporic Chinese and ethnic Chinese, or overseas Chinese and foreign Chinese, is, in my opinion, sometimes obfuscated particularly after the turn of the century when the concept of returning to one's original roots, urging ethnic Chinese to reorientate back towards their roots in China, started to gain traction in China's application of this narrative. Things are further complicated by the fact that, the, that implicit in all this is the desire to appeal to the ethnic allegiances of Taiwanese towards the objective of reunification. To illustrate 
something of this confusion, note the following comments of uh, Xi Yushan, Director of the Overseas Chinese Affairs Office of the State Council. I quote him here. Overseas Chinese are Chinese citizens who have settled abroad. Chinese foreign nationals, in the usual sense, refers to former Chinese citizens who have acquired a foreign nationality as well as their descendants. Overseas Chinese and Chinese foreign nationals are usually inseparably combined in overseas Chinese affairs work. And overseas Chinese and Chinese foreign nationals are collectively referred to as overseas Chinese compatriots, unquote. Which leads me to a third observation. The waters do get murky when narratives of culture and civilization, or more specifically, the superiority of Chinese culture and civilization, are parlayed to undergird the rise of the modern Chinese nation state as a global power. President Xi Jinping himself proclaimed as much at the 2014 World Friendship Conference of Overseas Chinese Associations. Let me quote him here. The united and unified Chinese nationality is the common root of all Chinese people at home and abroad. The extensive and profound Chinese culture is the common soul of all Chinese people at home and abroad. And the realization of the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation is the common dream of all Chinese people at home and abroad. Our common roots make us deeply attached to each other. Our common souls make us close to each other. And our common dreams make us united in one heart and one mind. We will surely be able to jointly write a new chapter in the development of the Chinese nation." Unquote. It is from this vantage that ongoing efforts to rekindle China's bonds with overseas ethnic Chinese communities must be understood, whether in the form of calls to young Indonesian Chinese to learn Mandarin in order to strengthen their affinity with the Chinese nation, reminders from Chinese senior officials to Malaysian ethnic Chinese that China is their maternal home, or sponsorship of seeking routes and homecoming trips for ethnic Chinese from Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore to China. But herein lies the heart of the matter. China's interest in ethnic Chinese communities and the cultural awakening that its soft power diplomatic outreach, outreach has quickened runs up against entrenched insecurities and enduring dynamics of identity politics in Indonesia and Malaysia, where indigenous identities, whether Pribumi or Bumiputra, remain reference points for political power and influence over non-Pribumi and non-Bumiputra, where in some circles ethnic Chinese are still pejoratively labelled China in Indonesia or Pendatang in Malaysia, and where stereotyping and discrimination remain evident today, not to mention residual fears of ethnic Chinese dominance of the domestic economy that are now rendered more acute by virtue of exclusive cultural ties to the economic powerhouse that is today's China. It goes without saying then that the implications of this state of affairs are profound 
for ethnic Chinese communities already straining for equal rights in their home country against the backdrop of identity politics that is often directed at them. I could say more on this issue, but I'm afraid I'm running out of time. So let me make some final concluding observations. This afternoon, we have focused on two issues that, in a sense, represent arguably the most pressing geopolitical challenges for maritime Southeast Asia today. The situation unfolding in Palestine and the rise of China, specifically its cultural dimensions, or cultural China, if you will. Our interest, however, has not been on these events per se, as important as they are. Rather, I have presented them as prisms through which to better understand undercurrents of identity politics that persists in maritime Southeast Asia. It is common knowledge that the politicization of ethnic and religious identities has been a feature of the socio-political landscape in our corner of the world for some time now. They have brought geopolitical events of today into sharper relief. How Indonesia and Malaysia have reacted to the tragic retelling of the Palestinian tale currently underway has much to do with how religious identities in their own countries have been reinforced and politicized in recent decades. Meanwhile, touching on another vector of identity politics in the Malay Javanese world, the rise of China has further complicated long-standing dilemmas of the cultural identity and political positioning of ethnic Chinese, Indonesians, and Malaysians in their home countries. Needless to say, these are complex, controversial issues of a sensitive nature. There are no clear ways through which they can be resolved, and that is assuming that there is desire to resolve them. For as I mentioned, there are political entrepreneurs who thrive on the politics of identity. But it is precisely for these reasons that they need to be better understood in all their complex nuances, not just as an academic exercise, but also in terms of how they shape public sentiments and policy discussions. Indeed, as a popular Malay pantun wisely instructs, hati hati makan timun, timun itu banyak bijinya. Hati hati kalau melamun, melamun itu banyak atinya. Take care when eating cucumbers, for the cucumber has many seeds. Take care when you dream, for dreams have many meanings. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Professor Liao. For those watching the lecture on Facebook, please submit your comments and questions through the Facebook comment box. For our audience members here, please step up to the mic to ask your questions. May I now invite Ms. Lee Su-En, Senior Fellow and Coordinator of the Regional Strategic and Political Studies Program at ISIS Yusuf Ishak Institute to start the Q&A session. Thank you, Joe, and congratulations. That was a very fitting finale to <laughs> what has been a very masterful uh, series of lectures that you've given. I, I like that you ended on a very poetic and <laughs> evocative uh, note, uh, in part because it encourages all of us to 
reflect on what you have said, um, even at a very personal and existential level. Um, the very last line uh, of the poem, take care when you dream, for dreams have many meanings. This, for me, encapsulates what continues to be the key challenge facing maritime Southeast Asia, uh, which is that of nation state building. We have in Southeast Asia many ethno nations and all living within the construct of a fairly modern nation state. And as you have pointed out in your lecture and also in your previous lectures, these deep narratives of ethnic identity, religious identity, have been politicized and used um, for very naked political and geopolitical uh, gains. And these are deep, deep fault lines uh, that can really be exploited. I wanted to ask whether in the context of today's heightened geopolitical competition and the fact that we are seeing the revitalization of ideological narratives, the battle for hearts and minds, whether you are concerned about the state of the nation state building project in maritime Southeast Asia, um, do you worry about the sectarian tensions really coming to a head? And is there a constructive way forward in terms of navigating the fault lines and reestablishing some sort of unity or consensus um, going forward? Thanks. Thanks, uh, Sue. Um, so that's another lecture. <laughs> <laughs> Very big question, but very important questions. Um, but let me, let me just quickly uh, re respond to it. Um, I think yes and no. Uh, yes, in the sense that um, if you look at the region today and you consider how far uh, practically every country in the region has come. You know, um, it was you know, barely, barely 50 years ago where we were so deep in the throes of, of uh, you know, uh, instability and even uh, uh, revolt and revolution right, in Southeast Asia. Um, uh, those of you who, who work on Southeast Asian history, you know that uh, you know, 50 years ago, the region was called a region in revolt. Yeah, there's a reason why we were called a region in revolt. Um, and then you fast forward and you look at um, how far the region has come. Um, it really is uh, commendable and, uh, and impressive. And, as an aside, um, you know, we, we're not going to talk about ASEAN today, but ASEAN had a, a lot to do with that. But having said that, um, I think uh, a lot of the fault lines are still there. right? And if you look at the, I mean, you, Sue, you asked about Maritime Southeast Asia. If you look at Maritime Southeast Asia, and primarily if you look at Singapore, Indonesia, and Malaysia, I thought these three countries represent a very interesting spread in terms of the nation building uh, models that we have. Um, in, in Singapore, we, you know, uh, what's and all in terms of our efforts, we have tried to build a, a country, a national identity based on what scholars uh, call uh, civic nationalism, right? Um, I.e., 
national identity, identity predicated on value, shared values, yeah. that uh, people, regardless of uh, you know, language, race, or religion, uh, can share. Right? Um, on the other extreme, you have uh, Malaysia, which I think uh, there is quite clear that they are nationalism in Malaysia is very much predicated on uh, an ethnic nationalism. Right? The fact that one uh, ethnic group is to dominate. Create space for the other ethnic groups, no doubt, but uh, you know, uh, uh, make no uh, mistake about it, one ethnic group dominates. And then you have Indonesia, which very interestingly is in the middle. It is the largest, it is the most diverse, and because of that diversity, uh, those of you who know, in, in, the, in the 1920s when uh, nas Indonesian nationalism birthed the PNI, the, the, the Nationalist Party of Indonesia, led by uh, Sukarno Muhammad Hatta, a conscious decision then was made to eschew ethnic and linguistic uh, base to Indonesian nationalism and to try to create a civic nationalism. Yeah. And so Indonesia tried that, but for large parts of its history, it had to, it, it had to deal with the, the centrifugal forces right, of, of its very diverse uh, ethnic uh, 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 landscape, yeah? um, and you know, as I alluded to in, in my lecture, I think the the, the ethnic Chinese, in particular, um, uh, to various degrees at various po points in time of Indonesian histories, uh, were subject uh, uh, to that yeah? the, the kind of uh, identity politics. So, so in Indonesia, there, there was always that tension. So you, you, you see in these three countries, three very different uh, models. But where it gets uh, uh, complicated is um, when you look at the three countries and you consider that culturally it forms a unit, right? It forms a unit in terms of you know, uh, you know, shared culture, shared history. And um, if you have some countries predicating their national identities on uh, culture and history and others trying to, to transcend that uh, in a sense, um, in terms of uh, predicating it on shared values uh, um, across mm. these boundaries, um, you get that tension, I think. Yeah. And I, you know, our, our future is very much also going to be defined by how we manage <coughs> these tensions as a society in Singapore as well as how we manage those tensions in terms of our place in maritime Southeast Asia. Thank you very much. Um, can I invite any questions from the audience? And when you do so, can you just go to the mic and identify yourself and ask a question? Any questions? Uh, yes, please. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Ashok Mirpuri. Oh, no, Thank you, Joe, for that very rich lecture, and I look forward to reading it because I want to go back and see some of the big themes that you drew on that. I want you to go deeper into the Singapore relationship with Indonesia and Malaysia, because as you identify these themes of ethnicity and religion, these you speak of a bigger unit that has Singapore, Indonesia, and Malaysia together. Actually, what they may see is fractures fractures between differences of religion and ethnicity that pull them in different directions from Singapore, particularly in a world that is shape, is being shifted because of a more multipolar world, because of different 
attitudes coming up, and how then do we deal with these neighbors? There's very little deep understanding of our neighbors uh, that I hope your lecture can help to overcome. But how do we deal with them when there's always constantly going to be these differences because they both identify themselves on ethnic religious lines and Singapore is really quite different. So how do you see that into the future? Thank you. Thanks, uh, Ashok. Um, it's a very uh, good question and a very important issue. Um, I think uh, certainly as far as uh, Singapore is concerned, uh, or, or rather what we, you know, in a sense, what we can do about what's unfolding in uh, Malaysia and Indonesia is very limited, obviously, what, what we can do. I mean, the, 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 the best we can do is to um, make an effort to understand what is really driving uh, those, uh, those differences and make sure that um, we, we, we try to, uh, after establishing the understanding, to be able to try to engage them as neighbours. Right? So, uh, uh, give you an example and one that you are familiar with, um, having, you yourself having spent time in Malaysia, um, that uh, this, this question of the, the, uh, the, the role of uh, religion, religi religious identity in the Malay community, i.e. Islam, uh, and by which I mean a very uh, a visible, very public role that it is uh, assuming now. Um, I think that um, my, my guess is that trajectory is going to continue. In fact, it's going to well, deepen or become steeper or whatever it is, but basically it, it, it's, it's going to continue. Um, and we need to try to, you know, if not get ahead of it, at least get a good sense of what is, what is driving this, you know, um, to make sure that we, we develop a, a, a good understanding and we can demonstrate to our neighbours that we are making that effort to, to understand that. You know, we're not sort of... Uh, uh, Casting judgment, as it was, you know, but just uh, trying to understand. I think that that's really the, the the best thing we can we can do. Over and above that, um, and this is my my, my pet issue, right? Uh, that our our education system, our our students are not, uh, you know, they all want to do Europe. They all want to. I, I'm in the university. They all want to go to Europe, study Europe, and enjoy Europe. Uh, no one wants uh, exposure uh, in, in in Southeast Asia. I think that is a problem. I think that is that is that that is, that is a, a big problem. I mean, by all means, have your vacation in Europe, but I think there there needs to be a concerted uh, and sustained. It has to be sustained, if I may say so. One thing I notice is there are there are, you know there are peaks, you know, where 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 people realize we need we need to introduce. Uh, more opportunities for students to be exposed to the region, and then you know, someone pulls out, someone pulls in, and then uh, you know it tapers off. Um, I think we, we we really need to to make a concerted uh, effort because we are not going anywhere. This is this is our back backyard, you know. Um, yeah. So so these are some of the thoughts I have on that. Hi, my name is Big Chen. I'm a postdoc fellow at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. Uh, so, uh, Prof, uh, Professor Liao, 
when I first saw the title of your lecture, I, uh, I, I thought that you would talk about, you know, the division between maritime and continental South Asia. So, uh, but I think, you know, uh, it also has implication, you know, like uh, political implication as well, because, you know, for example, in the case of Vietnam, you know, um, you know, uh, you know in, usually Vietnam is considered a continental South Asian country, but actually Vietnam sees itself as, as a maritime nation. Um, so uh, that also is, has an implication, you know, because of the South China Sea disputes, right? And then uh, the reason why Vietnam sees itself as a maritime nation because it has a very long coastline. Uh, but Thailand, on the other hand, you know, it also has a long coastline, but I think it's identified itself as a continental nation. So uh, do you have any thought on this division? Uh, thanks. Between, uh, Between maritime. Yeah, maritime and continental. Uh, okay, uh, yeah. So this is a bit of uh, a, a feel, but um, I'm happy to happy to share some thoughts uh, on that. I think this is um, this has posed a challenge for Southeast Asia in terms of its by which I mean the countries of the region in terms of their efforts to actually um, try to formulate or try to land on some sort of a coherent strategic outlook, right? Because you have maritime states viewing it. Uh, you pointed uh, the, out the South China Sea and, and it's something that you've worked on. I think that, that is a, a classic uh, example, right? Where you have maritime states um, whose priority is not the South China Sea. The priority is the Mekong uh, region, right? And, and how they deal with China uh, in, as the lower riparian states and China being, being up there. So that is uh, foremost in their mind. Whereas for um, the, the maritime states of Southeast Asia, um, the South China Sea uh, issue is more uh, prominent in terms of their, their agenda. So, so there are differences. There are, there are differences. I, I, don't think that, um, I don't think that these differences uh, can be wished away. I think it is very clear that the, I mean, in terms of geopolitics, the geographies affect how these states relate um, to each other and relate to the external powers. Yeah? So, so it, it, it is going to be, it's, it's real, it's going to be a reality, it's always going to be a challenge for ASEAN to surmount, uh, surmount this. Yeah? Um, but this is why, you know, back to um, some of the, uh, earlier lectures where I made the point, this is why uh, ASEAN has to work doubly hard, which explains all these meetings that it has, it has to have, you know, in order to try to, to get some kind of alignment of the, uh, on, on these perspectives, especially if you're dealing with external powers, right? Um, and uh, it's, it, it's not easy, but um, we, we, don't have, uh, we don't have any other choice. We have to, we have to work together. We have to try to get uh, all Southeast Asian states to see that whether mainland or continental, in certain respects, we are all in the, we are all in the same boat. We are all, uh, all facing the same kind of uh, challenges. Question up there. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you, Professor Leo, for uh, your uh, your good lecture. My name is Ming San. I'm your research assistant, but um, 
The one thing that I, as a Vietnamese national living in Singapore, working here, uh, as an inadvertent sort of student of Singapore foreign policy, because I'm just living so near folks around here, I wanted to ask a question, might be a bit dicey. Um, what are, what do you think are the upper limits of Singapore, uh, Singapore's foreign policy when it comes to key special relationships with Indonesia and Malaysia? The one thing that I, I feel is that Singapore always feels frustrated by the fact of its geography. It's always hemmed in by the unmovable facts of its terrain. Um, it has a good, proactive, very well-equipped and educated uh, diplomacy, but it always has to con be concerned with the vulnerability that it cannot always escape. Um, and I've sort of read through certain chapters of Singapore's foreign policy, and we feel that um, it does try its best to uh, espouse a very principled approach to non-interference, uh, interests of small states, international law, but are there areas where it cannot um, cross when it comes to Indonesia or Malaysia? Perhaps we might think of Singapore's principal uh, opposition to Vietnam's occupation of Cambodia is one thing, but what is the reaction to the Indonesian um, actions in Timor-Leste, for example, or East Timor? So what do you think are the limits when it comes to Singapore foreign policy when it comes to these states? Thank you. Um, wow, okay. Yeah, you and I have to have a word <laughs> after, after this session. Okay, but, but, but jokes aside, that, that's, a, that, that's a very uh, important question. I think there, there are certain key principles which you, you yourself had articulated as you asked the questions that uh, uh, it's, it's uh, very important for Singapore uh, on principle, but even more important in terms of our relationships with our, our, our neighbours. The, the thing about being neighbours is that the, 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 the temptation um, and uh, not even temptation, the issues that surface um, have a high chance of you know, having that trans-border uh, effect, right? I mean, the haze, uh, for example, yeah? uh, or, or uh, you know, illegal uh, migration, whatever it is. Yeah? I mean, um, that, that, is always, uh, that is always a challenge. So, so the, the, the fine line for Singapore is to make sure that when these uh, principles that we make very clear, so first and foremost, you have to make that very clear uh, to your neighbours so that when they are transgressed, you can point out that we've made this clear and it's been transgressed. Right? So that's first and, first and foremost. But second, I think um, in terms of our diplomacy, my, my understanding is that we, Singapore has tried to, when there are issues, when, when, when these principles are transgressed by the neighbours, um, and we have to we have to take a stand. We it's it's not immediately evident, at least to me, that you have to be um, sort of uh, very uh, visible and very vocal uh, about it. Right? You use other channels to try to put the message across. And this is something. Uh, and if if I may, um, ASEAN ASEAN uh, has always been uh, criticised for. Um, sort of uh, skirting tricky issues. From what I know, it's not a question of ASEAN skirting tricky issues. Very often, ASEAN members try to discuss these issues in various ways, shapes or form. Right? It's just that we don't want to put it out there. Right? 
because if you put it out there, you put certain countries or, or the countries, uh, you shine spotlight on certain countries that uh, may not be helpful in the larger scheme of things in terms of trying to foster the, the, the relationship. So I think uh, that that is another feature of how we, we have uh, dealt with, with these, uh, these issues. I think in terms of the in terms of the, the, the upper, upper limits, um, uh, like I said, I think uh, as far as our foreign policy, or as far as our leaders are concerned, we've made it very clear um, what are the, the principles on which Singapore foreign policy rests. Yeah? And uh, those are, those are non-negotiable. Non yeah? But as neighbours, you, know, uh, you always have to you know, talk about you know you you you, you cut your, your your tree, the leaves fall on my side, and this sort of stuff, right? Uh, you have to deal with this. You know, it's it's in, it's a definition of of, of being uh, neighbors. And a, a final point about um, the sort of uh, frustration. I I, I don't know, uh, but my own view is, I don't get the sense that uh, we are sort of frustrated about being where we are. We know where we are. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's just a question of making sure that we are not con constrained and confined by that, that geographical reality. We're not escaping that reality, but we should not let that reality define us. Yeah, I think that's a very important thing that we need to bear in mind. Let me turn to some questions that came in online and actually there is a very common thread across all of them. They have to do with Singapore's response to the Israel-Hamas conflict. So Kaisin asks, you know, you've spoken at length about Indonesia and Malaysia and how they have reacted to the Israel-Hamas war and China's influence. What does this mean for Singapore's multicultural, multi-religious society? And if I were to extrapolate from that, um, clearly, when you talk about the very powerful ethnic narratives, religious narratives that vie for our, our sense of identity and loyalty, while well, Muslims in Singapore um, also have reacted uh, to the Israel-Hamas war. And this is something that um, um, Gabriel Lim has also highlighted in his question. He uh, thanks you for the lecture and focusing on local identity politics in Singapore for a bit. Um, given that some in the Muslim community here have found Singapore's view of the Israel-Palestinian conflict unsatisfactory, what else can the city-state do to alleviate tensions and retain our social compact? Similarly, uh, Catherine Lim also asked something similar. Given the complexity of identity politics, what can ordinary Singaporeans do to approach the Israel-Hamas conflict? How can educators tackle the issues to students because it is not binary? I'm getting all the easy questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I think it, it's definitely uh, not binary. I'll, I'll say. Uh, let me say a few things in response. First is, um, I think. Uh, in, in a sense, Singapore's position has, to some degree, um, evolved uh, in line with the conflict uh, itself. Right? What I mean is this: when the conflict, uh, when when uh, October seventh uh, first happened, I mean the the idea of uh, basically militant groups and individuals crossing a border indiscriminately 
indiscriminately killing civilians, right? Kidnapping, uh, running back. I mean, it does. You you don't have to be a saint to realize that this is just n not right, yeah. And I think uh, in the case of Singapore, standing firm on our principles. That uh, I, I mean, I mean, point earlier about this sense of uh, vulnerab vulnerability. I mean, it's always there, right? It's always there in, in Singapore's thinking. Uh, some sometimes more acute than other times, but it, it's always there. And and in that regard, the idea of uh, external elements transgressing borders in this manner, we have to make a very clear stand. You know, and Singapore made a very clear stand, but. Uh, over time, Singapore has also made it equally clear that we cannot uh, accept the kind of indiscriminate nature of the Israeli response. Right? And we've also made it very clear that we have opposed, uh, num we have opposed uh, Israeli policy, for example, uh, on the settlements in the West Bank uh, for the longest time. Yeah? Um, but uh, unfortunately, the, 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 this, this, this event, uh, I mean, the, the, the situation now is, is so emotive that, uh, you know, sometimes people are either not willing or unable to take a step back and view it in, in the larger context, which is why in, in my lecture, I deliberately thought that we, we should take a, a step back. Yeah? Um, I think it's also about uh, you know, more engagement of the, of the population. I think we have reached a point where, and I mentioned this in my, if I may uh, refer to my first lecture again, we can no longer assume that foreign policy making uh, uh, and decision making in foreign policy is straightforward. Uh, the people who are uh, empowered to make those decisions decide and then you know, life, life goes on. I think those, those days are over. I think um, we have a more um, discerning uh, population that have access to different viewpoints and it's incumbent on the people making the decisions, not only to be sure about the decisions that they make, but to be able to communicate those decisions and relate it back to Singapore's interests. You know, to be able to define clearly what Singapore's interests are at a point in time and to relate it back. And I think uh, it's, uh, it's something that uh, a, a lot of them are already doing and it's, it's going to be the, the reality going forward. We, we saw this with uh, relations with uh, you know, uh, China when there were problems. We saw this with Russia, Ukraine. We see this now with Palestine. Tomorrow there'll be something. There'll be something, and the day after that, there'll be something. You know, so it's a tough job <laughs> being a, a, a diplomat. There are a few uh, re retired diplomats here. Um, it, it's, I, I think it's, it's, it's a tough job, uh, and tough job being a, a political leader. But, but that's the nature of, of society today, with the you know inundated with, with information, a more uh, uh, you know a discerning and discriminating uh, population. Uh, it's, a, it's just a different landscape uh, altogether. If not, I might take the opportunity to uh, reach for some quite complex um, questions <laughs> to end it off. Um, but um, pardon me if this is going to sound a bit garbled. Um, 
It's really interesting when you think about the big power dynamics in the region, um, US. Say, just, let's just focus on the US relationship um, in Southeast Asia, and especially vis-a-vis -vis, um, the Indonesia and Malaysia. The Israel-Hamas, the, this, this motif of the US's relationship with the Muslim world is driven and framed very much in terms of the Palestinian issue, um, the Israeli issue. And when you frame it um, in those terms, um, it is very easy to understand why you, will, you get um, different polls and surveys kind of showing a, a, a deep ambivalence um, in, in Indonesia and Malaysia towards the US because of the um, Muslim issue, if you like. Um, but then when you overlay the other big driver of contestation that we see in Southeast Asia, which is the US-China relationship, um, and when you get the countries to focus on the rise of China, and obviously there's a lot of anxiety about the rise of China, there you get some sentiments that go, hey, maybe having Uncle Sam around um, isn't so bad after all. Now you've got a situation where you've got the Israel-Hamas war really sort of taking, I guess, front and center of attention right now. And you see China, um, notwithstanding the fact that it actually has decent relationships with Israel, you see China sort of like taking the Muslim, uh, the, pro, the Palestinian sort of cause a lot more, if, if, if you like, thus reinforcing some of the strategic perceptions and dynamics that you sort of see in in Southeast Asia, um, especially related to Indonesia and Malaysia. So my, my question is, when you, when, you, when you see China play the Muslim card, so to speak, like this, um, do you have any re responses or reactions to how helpful, constructive this is? Hmm. Interesting question. Actually, the, the first thing I will say is, um, I, my own view is I wouldn't quite describe it as uh, um, China playing the Muslim card. Because, um, of course, it's an, it's an opportunity in terms of sort of a, a dip diplomatic one-upmanship, right? Um, but having said that, I think we need to remember that uh, China for a long time, uh, by which I mean 1949, uh, or even before that, has been very sympathetic to the Palestinian uh, cause as part of this whole uh, anti-colonial, uh, anti-West, uh, you know, non-aligned movement kind of uh, 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 sentiment, right? Um, so, so I think that, um, the, it, in a sense, it's not necessarily un, unnatural, although the interesting thing to, to ask actually, uh, and uh, time is up, but I will throw it out there, Xinjiang, right? Uh, you know, it's, it's intriguing, right? Uh, you look at how vocal Indonesia and Malaysia are on Palestine, and uh, you look at uh, Xinjiang, you all remember when um, the outgoing uh, UNHCR uh, did that, that report, uh, Michelle uh, Bachelet, and um, the Human Rights Council had to vote whether or not to, to sanction uh, uh, China. Um, 
Malaysia abstain. Uh, in fact, a large number of, not just Malaysia, Indonesia, a large number of Muslim countries, Muslim majority countries, either abstained or voted no. Or voted no. It was the, the Americans and the Europeans who voted, who voted mm -hmm. yes. Right? So that's an interesting question. You know? Why, why this, uh, this disconnect? But anyway, back, 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 to, this, back to this issue. Um, I think that uh, because of the, you know, the, that vast overlay of uh, super power, uh, great power competition and rivalry between the US and China today unfolding over anything and everything, it's in a sense no surprise that uh, even something like uh, you know, the, the Palestinian situation, which predates US-China rivalry, nevertheless will get sucked into, into US-China rivalry. And very quickly, on Southeast Asian states, however, um, it's interesting because I think, uh, like many of the, the Arab uh, powers, they don't want to, they are unwillingly being dragged into this, into this uh, conflict and, and being uh, compelled to take a position uh, on this conflict when their larger interests are better served by how relations were slowly developing with Israel in the context of the larger geopolitical uh, situation. To, to that end, a country like Indonesia, yeah, I think having signed uh, or having had their relationship upgraded with the United States, okay, will have to tread very carefully in terms of how anti-US they want to be on this issue. Uh, in fact, um, the, the Malaysians who are far more vocal um, will have to bear that in mind uh, as well, you know, in the larger scheme uh, of things. The, the, the American uh, uh, legislature has made uh, I, I can't remember the details, but uh, there is already legislation uh, with regards to, to entities and countries that have uh, that recognize Hamas or have links with, with Hamas. Yeah? Malaysia has to watch very carefully how, how, uh, you know, how serious the Americans are because their, their relationship with the United States and their their view on the US role in the region, hopefully, fingers crossed, hopefully is not defined solely by the Palestinian issue. If it is, it would be, in my uh, opinion, very short-sighted uh, of them. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That was great. Thank you so much. And please join me um, in thanking Professor Liao for his great series of lectures. Thank you, Ms. Lee and Professor Liao for your Q&A session. May I now invite IPS Director, Mr. Janadas Devon, to give his closing remarks. Director, please. Thank you, Professor Liao. We have come to the end of um, your lectures, um, series, Navigating Uncertainty, Our Region in Age of Flux. I would like to thank you for delivering this brilliant, insightful series of lectures. When I first spoke to you, our brief was speak about the evolving US-China tensions, how it will affect the region, and how it will affect Singapore. It is, of course, easier to speak about politics and geopolitics when it's done, accomplished, finished. It's much more difficult to say insightful things uh, about an evolving, rapidly evolving situation. But I think Professor Liao has 
risen to this challenge brilliantly. Uh, he has examined the present by, with reference to the deeper structures, the deeper trends uh, that inform the current of events. In this way, he has presented a possible frame, a possible lens to interpret events. I'm particularly grateful for the last lecture you've given, which I thought was suggestive and insightful. Um, identity reminded us that identity and identity politics can cross, turn, interrupt, distort politics as well as geopolitics. You've reminded us that identity can persist for a very long time and can recur in surprising new ways, as your quotations from um, Chinese officials suggest. And you also, I think, remind us that we in Singapore are not immune. For me personally, I took your lecture to suggest or to remind us that being Singaporean or becoming Singaporean is not a matter of subtraction, but of addition, not a matter of becoming less, but more, not a matter of contraction, but expansion, not a matter of reducing your soul to a singularity, identity politics, but of expanding it by sympathy and acceptance. So I thank you for the series of lectures and especially thank you for the last. This um, is the, I can't, lost count, it's only been nine years, but I, I think this is the 13th um, uh, IPS Northern Lectures. We began in 2009, I think, or 2008. Um, I'd like to thank everyone who's been involved in this year's IPS Northern Lectures, including Kaisin, um, and your moderators, um, Simon Tay, the first, um, Barry Desker, the second, and now um, uh, Lee Su Suan, and of course, Professor Liao yourself. Um, I should remind you that your duties as the 13th IPS Northern Lectures are not over. Uh, <laughs> you are supposed to convert them into a book, um, as the previous Northern Lecture, uh, uh, Professor Wang Gangu has done. And uh, we are launching his book next week. Uh, President uh, Thalman has, uh, will grace the occasion. And um, he's here, by the way. <laughs> and Professor Liao is going to be succeeded um, uh, next semester by, uh, by Tan Chong Ming, um, who will speak about, hopefully, the economic dimension of what you spoke about today. And then uh, by Lily Kong, uh, president of SMU, uh, after that. Um, I'm not quite sure what she's going to talk about, but I told her the title of the lecture that I would, pre I would prefer is The Idea of the University. So thank you very much all for joining us, and thank you again, Professor Liao. We've come to the end of today's lectures. We would like to hear your views on the event. Please click our link on the Facebook feed or scan the QR code on the screen to submit your feedback. Thank you all for attending today's lecture. Have a good evening ahead.